Hello, and welcome to another episode of Continuous Testing Live. I'm your host, Noel Wurst, and I'm going to keep the intro brief today as we've got a conversation that I am very excited about sharing with you all. But real quick, for anyone who may be new to the program, Continuous Testing Live is a vendor-neutral, sales-pitch-free show where we sit down with some of the amazing individuals in the software testing community and talk about not just continuous testing, but all of the components found inside it, whether it's agile, DevOps, exploratory testing, automation, AI, or the right cultures that make all of these things work. We try to cover it all on this program. This week, I am thrilled to share with you a conversation that I was lucky enough to have with Don Haynes. Dawn is, without a doubt, one of my favorite people on the planet. From her highly enviable zen-like state that I often find her in, to the wealth of knowledge around so many facets of software testing, to her being the one and only guest who I have ever forgotten to hit the record button for during an interview, and then a year later agree to be a guest again. Dawn is the best, and I highly recommend checking out any sessions that she is leading at, test- at testing conferences around the globe. With that, here's this week's episode of Continuous Testing Live. So your talk this morning was called Being More Agile Without Doing Agile. And one thing I always like to do is kind of like a setting a, a base for everything, like defining uh, certain words or, or understanding titles better, is to ask the speakers what inspired the talk. What did you either see out there or not see out there that told you that this could be helpful information uh, for people in your session? So I I think that's a really good question because, you know, Agile's been the flavor of the month for quite a long time. And initially when the the Agile, I'd say, marketing machine got rolling, um, it just made me roll my eyes. It's like, oh, new lipstick on the pig of, you know, what, some organizations were already doing and organizations that I worked at were already doing. And I didn't really understand what the ripple would be. And so it's been over 10 years, Mm -hmm. right, where it's been out there, people have been struggling with it. And I teach a variety of classes and I go to conferences and I speak and I get questions over and over and over again. How do we test in Agile? I remember the first time I heard the question, I just kind of was confused. I'm like, well, you do whatever you need to do, right? What are they building? When are they building it? That's what you test, right? And so it was unclear to me what the ambiguity was. And I think as things have transitioned, we've gotten a little more structure and there's a lot more help Mm -hmm. um, for teams in times of transition. And we understand the space a little better But even people that understand the ceremonies and understand the outcomes of Agile are still struggling with letting go of what they envision as a tester's role. And so out of that type of question and very persistent question on the part of testers and test managers alike, I thought it was important to address the issue of this Agile mindset because we've been talking about it for a long time, but people aren't shifting. So what I wanted to to draw out was what has people blocked? 
what are the anchors that are keeping them in their ways of thinking and their um, habits of how they approach their work. And so going through this process has, has, you know, made me think pretty deeply about it. And that's how, how I put the presentation together. That's cool. You know, I've, I've speak with a number of people, you know, at conferences like these as well. And you find out people who, you know, they're not agile in any way, but they're not, I don't mean they're not struggling. Everyone's struggling with something, but they are doing things that make them agile as individuals or as testers without any kind of agile top-down initiative that they've been given. Um, so one of the lines that you had, uh, I, was, I was taking notes so fast that I, that I didn't get the, a chance to fully, fully grasp, was talking about building tests that are more flexible as the pace of development accelerates. So with increased Agile adoption and DevOps and all these things, it's all we hear about is accelerated release cycles and shorter windows of time for testing. So what makes tests flexible, easier to maintain, um, and, and, uh, and just more usable in those smaller windows? So for me, in my career, I think back to what I've done in various projects, and here's a true confession that, that will freak a lot of people out. I've never written a, a structured step-by-step -step test case in my entire life. Wow. I've never needed it. Right. No one ever showed me one. Mm -hmm. No one ever said you had to do testing this way. Um, I've done exploratory testing from my experience with the product, but also users and usage because I drifted into QA, a formal QA role from tech support. So I felt like I had a real bead on what customers were trying to do and what our products were for. And I didn't think I needed a lot of guidance about that, but I still needed to structure my own work, even though I was a giant test team of one. Mm -hmm. So I built out spreadsheets. And in the spreadsheets, I would list out the features, kind of in priority order. And then I created my own test design technique, Dawn's Rule of Three. For everything I wanted to evaluate, I wanted at least one positive test, at least one negative test, and at least one crazy test. So as long as I covered those bases, I felt like I shook out what was relevant in the feature or the function, and I had some level of knowledge and confidence about it if those tests pass. So for me, you know, the negative test is the contrary test, putting in invalid data, seeing if I get an error message or, you know, something like that. I, wa I want to make sure I can handle things. And a, and a crazy test is more like an out-of-bounds stress test, you know, pushing something to the limits. And those things won't happen every day, but I believe those things will happen in production. And it tells me something about the robustness and the reliability, the stability of this thing, which just gives me another way to evaluate it. I couldn't necessarily say it was good or bad. Right. Um, I'd just say I had knowledge about it because on that particular project, we had no requirements, no project manager, no status meetings. I mean, it was truly running XP and sales driven development. So we would ship when we thought it was good enough or the customer wanted it. <laughs> you know, this is kind of how it went. And out of that, I've kind of, you know, transitioned my little shorthand for tests into mind maps. So now I would build a, a set of test conditions or a test inventory um, using a mind map instead of writing step-by-step -step test cases. Uh, so let's say we're testing withdraw cache. What would be important to test regarding the withdraw cache 
functionality. So the inputs, the withdrawal amount that you're requesting. But probably the most important thing is the outputs, right? right. What's the money coming out? Um, what about the receipt? What about the posting to the account on the bank system, right? There's lots. What about limits? Mm -hmm. Daily limit, transaction limit, insufficient funds limiter, right? So if I start making this list, mm -hmm. I get this roadmap of things to evaluate and I can engage my stakeholders and say, all right, is this list what we need to evaluate? Yes or no? Is there anything missing? Mm -hmm. Is there something on this list? Like I put put performance up there because right. I'm I'm a performance aficionado and you know some team member could shoot me down and say nope we're not evaluating performance this time it takes time it takes money it takes effort and we're not committing to that right now excellent it's off my plate now I don't need to worry about it right. but if I didn't do that if I buried that stuff in test cases and then asked people to evaluate them I wouldn't get that feedback right and then the last thing I want to do, once we're sure the list is vetted and we're comfortable and committed to what's there, let's prioritize it. Mm -hmm. So I can just figure what intensity of testing makes sense. So that's how I'd roll in just about any and every project I could. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very appropriate for Agile, lightweight, flexible. Yeah, I can make changes really quick. And look, if I needed, say I'm in a regulated space, mm -hmm. um, for compliance purposes to have test case documents. Let's do exploratory testing right up until the very end and let's record or capture the last test we run. And if we need to put it in step-by-step -step fashion in a test tool or a document, then let's do that as part of our exit criteria. And I think those things can be accomplished and still enable our agility throughout the sprint. Yeah. Yeah, the mind map uh, reminds me, uh, we had Michael Bolton come out and teach his rapid software testing class, and the first the first task we got was to create a mind map for the uh, testing of a wine glass. And we had so long to do it, and I remember thinking, like, it's not going to take us 30 minutes to write down all the tests for a wine glass. It holds wine or it doesn't. Does it fall over? You know, like, how easy does it break kind of thing. And when we finished, we had come up with not only so many more tests than I really thought we would have. I mean, it was uh, so much. We actually, our group had more than anyone else. But as every group went by, you know, everyone had something we'd totally forgotten about. And then Michael showed his and the zooming out that he had to do to even have it all fit on a movie screen was a thousand times more. And obviously he should be better at it. But it was a really great way, like you just said, to to have all those things and then to be able to prioritize them, cross out entire branches if they're not something we're testing at this time. We're not making the glasses out of wood this time. We don't need to do all those tests on wood or we're not shipping more than six at a time, so we don't need to test that box that holds 50 glasses, that kind of thing. But it was it was really interesting to see it in a mind map format as opposed to a list of test cases that you then spend time just trying to figure out how to read exactly. and trying to figure out what they're actually going to accomplish. Yeah. Um, so in your session this morning, you also stressed the need for testers to focus on really understanding what is really needed by the customer. Um, you know, I know a lot of testers, developers, marketers, whoever, are being told that what you need to focus on are these business goals. Um, which often in the tech world results to selling more software. But I think those are kind of the same. Like it's just because you're like, oh, I wish I could focus on the customer. I got to sell more software. It's like, well, you sell more software by focusing on the customer. That's by making sure you're actually making what they want, that you've tested it and that it does what they think it's supposed to. So it's a way for, you know, we talk about how, for, how testers can talk to the business and how the business can talk to them and stuff. There's really a shared goal there where I feel like some people don't view it as like people are just trying to focus on the customers or they're just focused on sales, mm -hmm. but it seems like one and the same. I, that's a really important challenge for us to deal with because 
I know on my my first project where I had an official title of quality assurance engineer, um, I'd done lots of testing before that, but I believed my commitment was to the customer. And then we hired a, a project manager. Now, he was a shiny new MBA just out of school, never worked on a project before. Mm-hmm. Bounces into the test lab one day and goes, you know, hi, introduces himself. And I look at him slyly and like, what do you want? <laughs> you know, because anybody that was in my lab was, you know, looking longingly at my Unix boxes because they wanted some computing power. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I was pretty protective of, of that stuff. But he said, I want to know how it's going and, you know, when you might be done. And I just, uh, like, shock, fear, panic, everything just came into my sphere. And mm-hmm. I, I was like, dude, I've got a gazillion configurations to test. I computed it a few years ago, conservatively over 144,000 configurations to test. And I was a test team of one. And we were getting a build a day. We internationalized. We, we um, translated our product user interface into French, German, Italian, and Spanish. And we did OCR into 17 languages. Now, I didn't have to test the 17 languages. That was tested before it came to me. But I needed to test all the different language support, scanners, um, windowing systems like OpenLook and Motif for, you know, different Unix platforms. And that ends up being a lot of stuff. So I just looked at them and said, never. And then asked him to go away. Because he was making me feel uncomfortable. Right. I couldn't answer his question. Right. Damn it. You know, and I, w- I was really frustrated about that. So the next day he comes in and asks the same question. I'm like, dude, do you forget the conversation we had yesterday? Right. I don't have a better answer. It still sucks in here. Right. And by the way, I'll be here um, until the sun explodes or you pry this thing out of my cold, dead hands. So, you know, I'll be doing testing. We'll be finding bugs. We'll be fixing things. But I don't have a clear vision on done. Like that was missing mm-hmm. for me. And because I, I thought the job was quality and I thought the job was excellent, right. you know, the ex- we're, we're trying to hit that, that imaginary bar. Right. <laughs> and if we did, we never ship software. But back then, mm-hmm. I didn't have that vision of tying those two things together. So the third day, he came into the lab and I just, I pointed and I said, you, out. And you're banned. You can right. never come back. And so we didn't find a way to work well together. Right. He still talks to me. I don't know why. Um, I, I just, so, so look, neither one of us could figure it out in, in that moment. We weren't supporting each other. We weren't serving each other, but here's the deal. We don't test for testing's sake. Right. Um, we test for the project's sake. So if we're not aware of the project goals, we could be running the wrong tests. We could be coming, we could be, um, acting like a testing boat anchor, mm-hmm. holding it back when there's no reason to hold it back. Right. And in retrospect, I was that boat anchor on that project. Now, if I'd just gotten my head out of my butt long enough to think about what are we really trying to achieve here? Who is our customer? What do they want? And what are we trying to achieve? I already knew the answer. I came from tech support. So think about it. Who the heck on planet Earth uses OCR software on Unix? So that's not a commercial product, really. I mean, we sold it as a commercial product, but no one bought it. I mean, very, very few customers. But our biggest customer was the U.S. government. 
the NSA, the DOD, and all three-letter agencies that shall not be named. And I supported those people, so I knew exactly what they were doing. Um, they worked in lockdown facilities, underground, no windows, no hard lines, no phones. Mm -hmm. So when they had a problem with the software, they had to go home. We didn't have, have cell phones back then. Right. They had to go home and call us for tech support. And if we needed to send them an updated version of software, we needed to send it to someone's house. So I knew what it was like to support them. Right. I also knew what they were doing. They were technically spying, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're OCRing lots of documents in other languages. Because I remember asking one time, we were troubleshooting a problem, and I said, can you send me a document? And they're like, <laughs> of course not. Right. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, how else am I gonna troubleshoot right. this problem? And they're like, oh no, it's classified. Uh, Really? You know, like, we can't get anywhere here. And in my entire time there, five years I worked at that organization, I got exactly one document from them that was about 98% redacted. Big black marks through everything. But it was helpful because I saw, like, the letter A and the number one, and at least I knew what font we were dealing with. So if I just thought about that customer and their needs and their constraints... And our revenue goals, for example, we were just waiting to realize revenue from them. Mm -hmm. If I had thought about that for one minute, yeah. the first time new project manager dude walked into the room and asked me, so when's it going to be done? Hands up in the air. Woohoo! Take it. Yeah. It's good enough. Right. I don't need to keep digging for bugs. It's bloody good enough. Right. And I feel a bit awkward about having learn that lesson so much later than the moment yeah. that it was all happening. And it was because we were so both so dysfunctional in the space and right. there was nothing to help us. But that's a big clue by four, yeah. right? That I could have said right then, it's ready to go. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's the, the biggest awareness that I got, that there's a balancing act. Mm -hmm. There are stakeholders that we serve. We serve the organization. We serve the project, stakeholders, and their decisions that they need to make. So if we're not doing that, we might be a little off kilter mm -hmm. in, yeah. in, in where we're angling. So um, so that's how I got there. Yeah. And I, I try to get other people there. Right. I had a project that I worked on recently, not a, a testing project, just a campaign that I was running, and I knew that I was doing it inefficiently at times. But there wasn't time to look for how to do it better. Right. I was like, I'm just going to keep doing it this way. It is getting done bit by bit. I'm mm -hmm. grossly behind on everything else. But if I stop to start researching where to find the solution, I don't have any idea where to even start looking. Then nothing gets done. So I just like willingly did it yep. poorly. Uh, or no, not poorly, slowly. Mm -hmm. um, it came out really well. But next time, it's like I got to start looking for the solution now or else I'm going to go try and finish all this work I didn't do at the time. It's going to come back around because it's an annual campaign. And I'm going to go, crap, i got to do it the, the slow and efficient way again. Um, you had a, uh, a slide that urged testers to, you know, to ask, is the software ready? We kind of just talked about this a minute ago, and not are the tests done. Um, our, our CMO is constantly preaching the same message, but he, he, his definition of ready is, does the release candidate, candidate have an acceptable level of risk? And I went and saw a session on risk-based testing yesterday, um, and I, just, I, th I think that risk-based testing is one of those things that I, I feel like it's almost all going to become risk-based. Like, it'll have to. Like, when you start thinking about how quickly you can be 
disrupted, put out of business, whatever you want to call it, yep. if you're not evaluating what the testing you're doing is doing to improve risk or what the salespeople are, are doing that is improving or decreasing risk, that risk-based testing won't be something of, do you do this? It'll be one of those questions of, you, you better. Like everyone will say, well, we do, because what else would we do? Test and willingly not know the risk we were introducing to the business. Right. Well, um, this is one of the things that I, I cover in training classes. And even when it's not a major topic um, for the course material, it comes up for discussion um, because we've been plagued by requirements-based testing in the industry for a long time. Right. And when I started working in the tool space, especially around test management tools, it was very obvious very quickly that as people were trying to take advantage of traceability, right? I have tests, I trace them to requirements. And then I have orphans. I have tests that I want and need to run that are valuable, that are headless, because they don't tie to requirements for the software. Right. They tie to other concerns, very global concerns, project level concerns, intangibles, like just a whole bunch of, of things that we wouldn't give up. So I became aware very quickly that the reports that this test management tool was generating around requirements-based coverage was not going to tell the whole story. So back then, I, I formulated a, kind of a pitch around, let's understand test plan coverage, which is bigger and broader than requirements coverage. Right. And if we do that, then we don't have these holes and gaps. And the risk is that you've got a project manager or a team that's going into the test management tool and only looking at the requirements coverage report, right. right? So I thought it was important to have that level of education then. And, you know, here it's almost 20 years later and we're still in this space struggling to get away from requirements that are too myopic. Right. Um, and, and for a couple of reasons, you talk about risk and one category or one area of that risk is what bugs exist in this system. And I can go hunt for bugs. I can use software attacks. I can use error guessing. I can use exploratory testing to specifically look for certain kinds of bugs that we've had before, but our requirements aren't going to lead us to those right. tests. So if I'm thinking about the risk of a certain bug existing, and it's my goal to avoid having that escape into production, then that avoidance strategy is a risk mitigation strategy, right? So if I can get people to talk about studying their bugs and have a class of tests that is directed at making sure the most important bugs that we don't want to have aren't present in the places that we care about, that is the essence of risk-based testing. Absolutely. And I think it is a shift that, that we need to, to take on big time in the industry. And I don't know how we get the, the stakeholders who are very tied to those requirements, um, especially when we do software by contract, because we're negotiating around the product features and the requirements or the stories or you know whatever um, we're encapsulating as the functionality that's going to be built for us. And we often don't know how else to talk about it. Right. So I encourage people to have conversations about acceptance criteria, which in my mind is a measurement of quality factors that matter. Mm -hmm. 
and that level of risk is in there. It's like it's showing up as what is the acceptable risk or a definition of minimum viable product or something like right. that. There's lots of ways to identify it if we're looking for it. And when we're on to it, then we can ask the probing questions that we need answered so we can translate those things to tests. Right. Or say, testing's not going to help you mitigate that risk. It, go go find um, you know another channel mm -hmm. uh, for that. So I try to have it um, be very ever-present in discussions and try to help teams kind of shift in that direction. That's really cool. That um that reminds or not reminds me, but made me start thinking of maybe in ten years when I find the free time to do this. But by that point, it'll already be written by somebody else. But there's essentially risk-based marketing, in the sense that we know we have to create X number of leads that will result in X number of you know conversations or engagements or whatever we want to call them. But it's like there are these other. You talked about headless testing activities. This podcast. This podcast does not generate leads. You don't have to register to listen to it. It's free and out there. It's hard to measure how many people are listening to it and where they're from and what their roles and titles are. But there's a certain risk in only making sure that everything we do focuses on leads. Right. If we only did this podcast and hung out at conferences and tried to have fun conversations, sales would say, where's the leads? And we would say, oh, we, uh, we haven't thought about leads in forever. We, would, we wouldn't do that. So there's a, a, an essence of some risk-based marketing there of making sure you're not just following requirements aka leads, uh, you're following some outside stuff as well. Sure. That's really cool. Um, so the last question, um, not to try and put you on the spot, um, but I'm really curious to get your opinion on one of the modern testing principles. Uh, for anyone listening who isn't aware of those, uh, they're written by Alan Page uh, and are causing some kind of confusion and some uproar right now in the testing community because there's some, there's some kind of harsh ones in there. I mean, one of them suggests that testers, quote, uh, embrace reducing the number of testers or even eliminating the need for a dedicated testing specialist. Uh, there was someone at uh, Cast 18 who, during the lightning talks, tried to bring up what does everyone think about the modern, modern testing principles with about a minute to go at the very end. And there was just no time. And I felt so bad because that, that could have been the theme of the whole, uh, the whole week. It's such a big topic. But another one that I thought of during your session this morning is one of them would be believing that the customer is the only one capable to judge and evaluate the quality of our product. And like all the principles in this, I have some issues with it and some, you know, some parts of it that I like, some I don't. But I think it's really fascinating because we might already be doing that. If we're basing success on things like amount of software that we've sold, uh, less support tickets being filed, uh, reference, customer references, customer retention, those kinds of things, we're allowing those kinds of numbers to evaluate whether we're doing a good job and those numbers are all coming from the customer. It's not just us saying this software is great and then not having the customer data to back it up. So are we already kind of looking at customers as being, I don't know if it's the only one, but capable of being the evaluators of our quality? Well, this, this is a big topic. And in almost every class I teach, I throw out the question, what is testing? And then follow it up with, what is quality? What's your definition? People stumble all over right. the place trying to come up with a definition of testing. Right. And it's like, it's your job. Right. How, if you can't figure out what it is, then we, we got some problems. Right. Um, but when it comes to quality, I, I, so people just kind of stare off into the distance like, I don't know how to describe quality. Um, but it's like the Supreme Court talking about porn. I don't know how to describe it, but I'll know it when I see it. Right? It's like, so I feel it's an intangible in some way. 
And so I did some research on it because I wanted to have a good discussion about it in class and talk about the vagueness mm -hmm. of the quality space. And so I typically shift the question a little bit and say, all right, um, can you tell me what is your op opinion about a quality car? What's a feature of a quality car? Or what, what, how would you evaluate a, you know, a quality ice cream or something like that? So if we start talking about cars, some people will say fuel efficiency, some people will say um, safety ratings or you know, crash uh, ratings and things like that. And I'll say, that's beautiful, that's all really good stuff, mm -hmm. and I care about a sassy look and vroom, right. zero to 60. Like that's what I, and, and actually the, the most, two most important things that I care about are comfort mm -hmm. because I, I have a herniated disc in my neck and some lower back issues and I take lots of road trips. So I need comfort. Mm -hmm. Just imagine that I was going to write a set of requirements for a new car that I wanted somebody else to acquire for me and I was going to give them $40,000 to do it. Could I describe the quality factors that matter to me well enough for them to drive the, the car of my dreams up to my house right. and me to say, yep, you nailed it. Right. I doubt it. Yeah. I just doubt it. But yet we do this in software projects mm -hmm. and think it's going to work out. So um, part of the research I did is how do people describe quality, especially related to our industry and software. Mm -hmm. So um, I found uh, Phil Crosby's definition of quality, which is quality is conformance to the requirements. And I'm like, huh, okay. Not exactly sure what I think of that, right. but alrighty. Uh, maybe that's verification. Maybe that's we did what we said we were going to do. Right. So maybe that's also a notion of internal quality. We have a coding standard. We follow Windows standards, we follow database standards or architecture standards, like whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have internal standards that you're meeting, that is a notion of internal quality. Mm -hmm. Not really sure the customer cares about it. Right. But if we were going to get a sticker on our you know, box or a banner on our website mm -hmm. um, that says we comply with this or whatever, and that was going to mean something to some segment of our customers, then it, that becomes an external notion of quality because it's a value add to them. Mm -hmm. But it's still an internal notion of quality to the software. Mm -hmm. um, so the other one I really, really like is Joe Duran. Um, he, uh, at one point, was the head of the American Society for Quality. And um, he's also responsible for bringing um, Japanese manufacturing techniques uh, like Kaizen, mm -hmm and you know, Kanban and things right. like that to the car manufacturing industry. His definition of quality is um, fitness for use. Fitness for use and fit for purpose goes more along the lines of that principle mm -hmm. that, that you were talking right. about, right? That the customer kind of defines it. So user needs and expectations. If they're not met, we don't have a thing. Right. So I believe those two things are two sides to a testing coin, mm -hmm. that we need to do verification and validation or we don't really know what we've got. Mm -hmm. And so I try to weave that into every conversation about quality with a caveat. Right. 
Um, Jerry Weinberg says, quality is value to some person. So who is that person? Is it your stakeholder? Is it your sponsor? Um, the person who's ponying up the money for this project, this endeavor? Um, is it Gartner or some other, you know, um, industry leading organization that's going to evaluate you and, and leave an impression in the market? Is it your stakeholders? Is it your end users? So I think that quality is in the eye of the beholder. And unfortunately, there's not one in the mix it, it but there is one that's i i think ultimately important if we don't serve the customer if we don't meet their basic needs then i think we have a big miss and i think we have a big risk so i always want to think about users and usage and get them into the conversation i want them to evaluate early and frequently in sort of a spiral iterative way i, I want to check in um because I believe if we go for all internal notions of quality or we follow our beliefs, then we will build something that serves us and doesn't serve them. So there's a book out there called uh, Why Software Sucks, written by a guy named David Platt. And it's delightful in my opinion. But two thirds of the book is a rant at his budding developers that he teaches at, I think, uh, Harvard Extension in the Boston area. He basically says, your users are not you. Don't write software for you. Because if you write software for you, you might miss the mark in terms of what's important to them. So be careful about what you do. And if you don't know their job and you don't know their function and you've never met a user, I'd say you have an interesting gap in your knowledge and a potential risk that could matter. That is going to do it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And if you did, I promise we've got more episodes that are just as good coming up soon. So why not subscribe to the show? You can find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or the Google Play Store or SoundCloud by searching for Tricentis or Continuous Testing Live. And when you do that and then subscribe, you will be the first to know when each new episode is released. That is all for me. Thank you, Don Haynes, for being on our show. Thank you, listening audience, for the time you've spent with us today. And we'll see you on the next episode of Continuous Testing Live.